You're listening to Girl Talk, a podcast for girls, hosted by Girl Scouts River Valleys. Girls are go-getters, innovators, risk-takers, and leaders. As the premier leadership organization for girls, Girl Scouts sets the standard. Girl Scouts is the girl expert, and in a world full of challenges, we're in Girl's Corner. Hi, everyone. I'm Hannah, and as usual, I'm here with Idell. Hey. And today we're welcoming Dr. Amanda Doran to the podcast. Dr. Doran is a veterinarian who started out in general practice, which is usually what we think of when we think of a vet, but has taken a brave leap into launching her own business in a different and pretty new kind of veterinary practice that we're interested in hearing about. We think our listeners will be too. Dr. Doran, welcome to Girl Talk. Hello, thank you for having me. Thanks for being here. And just like if you've So if you've listened to our last couple episodes, we are still in the middle of the pandemic. And so we're remote. So if we sound a little bit different than usual, we're all in different places. Some of us are in our closets because that's a good place to record a podcast. (laughs) And it's fun to sort of look at what people have in their closets behind them (laughs) while you're recording your podcast. And we're like all over the place. I'm in St. Paul. Hannah's in Minneapolis. Amanda's way up in Duluth. So you know, technology. Woohoo. That's kind of cool. I mean, it's cool that we can have guests from all over now. Amanda, thanks so much for being here. We're excited that you're here because we know that a lot of kids and teens, particularly girls, are really interested in being veterinarians. Um, It's a really common response to like, what do you want to be when you grow up? I think I definitely said I wanted to be one at some point. So (laughs) yeah. I feel like every kid goes through that phase for sure. (laughs) So million dollar question, why did you want to become a vet? Yeah, I think I always felt really drawn to animals as a young person. And I think probably around 10 years old is when I realized like, oh, I'm going to have to have a grown up job someday. And I never wanted to do anything else, like nothing else really even came to mind. And I think a lot of it kind of stemmed from, I had this game when I was a kid called Tales of the Crystals by Milton Bradley. And it was for like (laughs) ages eight and up. And I made my younger brother and younger sister play with me. And there was four players and each one had a little magical crystal with a magical power. And I got two because I was the oldest, obviously. (laughs) And one was the leader, but then the other one I always wanted to have was the like shimmering green crystal of healing. And on our magical adventures, like you would set up this little like kind of place, imagine space, like within your home and like fight ogres and goblins. And there was like this wicked lady Morphe or whatever, but the magical green healing crystal had the power to heal any animal or any person that you came across. And I was like, well, that's pretty much the coolest thing ever. And like, yeah, so like, always kind of destined to like be a healer. And so when I started to learn about like different grown up jobs and I was like, oh, there's not really this out there, but veterinarian, like that's probably as close as uh, we're going to get. And I also like my mom's whole family was all dairy farmers and I was kind of first generation off the farm and she had a bunch of brothers and sisters and like many farms in the family. And I felt like I was always like in the way and like kind of getting kicked out of the barn and um, I was like, I need a way to like be involved with this and like be able to like contribute and like give back to my family and and be the magical green crystal healer. Magical green crystal healer, exactly. Yeah. And I also like 
I hadn't, hadn't thought about this when we were talking about this the other day, but there was also like when I was a kid, like probably like four or five years old, like there was a very um, serious barn fire um, at my grandparents' farm and a lot of the animals passed away. And like, it was because they had kind of like run back into the barn and we hear this happening because that's like kind of their safe place to be. And I remember thinking like, man, like I would have been able to like have that magical healing crystal. Like I could have helped like these animals, but then also my family. Like I remember seeing like how hard that was for them and how devastating it was. And like, we were kind of family, like nobody really talked about that kind of stuff. And everybody yeah. just kind of was like, everything's okay. Um, so I thought maybe in the back of my mind, like deep subconscious, like, man, like if I could find a way to like bring this magical healing crystal, like into the world, like I could really help people and animals with this, um, kind of stuff. And yeah, never really even considered doing anything else. Well, that's yeah. awesome and sounds like a game that I would love. <laughs> Actually, it does sound like a game you would love. <laughs> I made my husband play it with me for my birthday this year. It was so much fun. So like when we can be in person together, we could have totally like Tales of the Crystals game. It's so fun. <laughs> nice. <laughs> awesome. That's right up my nerdy alley. So yeah. that sounds great. That's so cool. So you recently left though. So you were you were doing general practice and that's kind of, what we mostly think of when we think of a vet, you go into the the office, take your pet with you. Tell us about what made you decide to go in a new direction. Yeah. And I've kind of been all over the place, like with my career is kind of thinking like, what do I want to do? And when I first started vet school, I would want to do emergency clinic. Like I worked in general practice in undergrad. I was like, I don't know if this is really for me. Like these people seem like they're really busy and like really tired. <laughs> and, going on. and like the idea of like owning my own business was like not appealing at all. And so I'd worked in emergency clinic for a while and I was like, well, maybe I'll do that. And then I realized I like to sleep at night and I got pretty interested in like pathology. So kind of like, like autopsies, like figuring out like, why did this animal pass away? And like looking at tissues and um, worked in the diagnostic lab. But then I was like, I really enjoy the light of day <laughs> and not <laughs> smelling like formalin. Although this is very interesting and in learning about like how different diseases work and like how like you kind of get from like point A to point B. And I was like, ah, I don't know about that. And then yeah, kind of looking into like some public health stuff. And, but then I found my first job. Um, I was like, I'm going to move to Canada and, um, did like five years doing mixed animal practice up in Thunder Bay. And so kind of most of the time I was in the clinic doing kind of the small animal dogs and cats, like as they come in the door and then spending more time kind of out on the road doing large and small animal calls after spending about five years in Canada doing that ended up moving back to the States and doing small animal practice and kind of felt like there was something more, like I was still not like loving it. Like I felt like it was really hard to like fill my cup back up at the end of the day. Like a lot of times, um, especially in busy practices, um, you tend to see anywhere from like 10 to 12 to maybe 15 appointments like on the schedule a day. And so some places those are like 15, 20 minute blocks. I was fortunate enough to work in places where we had like 30 minute blocks, but it was so hard. I felt like at the end of the day and like being on call, um, I did that quite a bit too. And so I'd have my little phone in the middle of the night. And if somebody called, like even if it was two o'clock in the morning, like I would go and I would help. And after several years, I was realizing like, this is not something that I can do like long-term sustainable, like for the rest of my career. And so I kind of started to think about, you know, what are the parts of this that I really enjoy that I would want to do more? And what are the things that I could 
leave and <laughs> would be okay with not doing anymore. Cause I kind of had this idea of like, I have to be this general practitioner, but started seeing all these other people who are doing other things and they seemed a lot happier and less stressed out than I was. I was like, what, what could I do along these lines? So first thing was kind of deciding like, I don't want to do large animal medicine anymore. Like I felt, I think in some ways that like I had to do that, like for my family to be like, yes, like I, I can contribute to this, but it's like, I'm kind of short and like pretty strong, but like my arms aren't very long and you put them in places where most people don't like when you're a large animal vet and also right. like pretty allergic to horses. And so I would like take Claritin every time I would go to see one and I did get hurt a couple of times and started having some issues with my shoulders and I knew like a lot of older vets would have like surgeries and injuries. And so I was like, ah, if I never have to pull a calf at 4am when it's 40 below ever again, that would be okay. And that felt really good. <laughs> it's like, you kind of say like, oh, I don't have to do all these things. And it was interesting. Like when I moved back to the States, I remember I had two interviews and one was a mixed animal practice and they were really trying to get me to do it. And I, I said no. And it felt so good. And I felt like it was a really awesome, like lesson in setting boundaries. I think for so long, I felt like I had to do everything and like see all the pets. And like, in order to be a veter good veterinarian, I need to see anybody who called at any time of day. And that's just not true. Like we can't possibly see all the pets. Um, so I started to kind of get interested when I came back and was doing small animal practice in kind of end of life care. Over time, like with emergency and um, large animal and on the road stuff, it helped say a lot of animals say goodbye. Like it comes with the territory and we help them mm -hmm. for their whole lives. And so we find ourselves oftentimes like helping people at the end. And when I was in vet school, I had euthanized my own dog Clyde um, at the emergency clinic in the middle of the night. And it was just like the hardest mm -hmm. thing. And I even worked there and I was like, man, like this sucks. <laughs> And yeah. I remember doing a lot in general practice and like helping people at home with it when I was a large animal vet. I was like, why don't we all do this all the time? And we did it a little bit in Grand Rapids. And so I was like, maybe that's something like I could do more of. And I had this feeling like, man, if I could do this all the time, like that would actually be kind of cool. Like it sounds kind of weird, but it really makes me feel good to help people in this way. It takes a certain kind of person to recognize that as something that they're that you're good at, like that you yeah, want to do. You want to do. Yeah. And yeah. Like, if I had a dollar for every time somebody said like, how do you do this? Or like, this must be the hardest part of your job. Like I probably would have my student loans paid off by now. Um, <laughs> Which is a lot of dollars. It's many, many dollars. So multiple hundred thousand dollars. Um, but it's worth it. Like I wouldn't, I wouldn't trade that experience for the world and kind of had to go through all these things to kind of figure out like, essentially like what my gift was and then kind of start to like not do the things that I didn't want to do anymore. So like I stopped um, doing certain surgeries. Like I didn't like decline cats or like kind of more complicated surgeries. Like I really wanted to do kind of more like the hospice kind of stuff. So I started kind of seeing like hospice patients and I actually have gotten a certification in hospice and palliative care through um, an international organization that is really focused on just end of life care. And so I was kind of starting to do that and started thinking about well, maybe I could just do this. Like there's other people who are doing it. Like Grand Rapids is a pretty small town, only 10,000 people. There's probably not enough business to support that. Can, um, you, can you talk about what hospice and palliative care means? Yeah, absolutely. So I feel like there's a couple of terms that like not everybody totally understands. So like hospice means essentially kind of like supportive care when we have like a chronic or um, terminal diagnosis. So when our focus kind of shifts from like curing to 
comfort? Like, how do we make sure that every day that's left for this individual, like whether it be a person or an animal, is as wonderful as it possibly can be? And I think sometimes there's like a myth that kind of gets out there of like, oh, like hospice is like prolonging the inevitable or it's, you know, delaying the natural, like, course of things. Um, But really it's kind of, yeah, like when we get to kind of the point where like diagnostics and like maybe treatments and other things aren't going to help as much, it's kind of really focusing on managing pain and maintaining well-being and quality of life for as long as possible. So that can look really different depending upon who you are and who your pet is and your beliefs and, and your budget and the time that you have. Palliative care is treating pain. So palliative care isn't necessarily an end-of-life thing. Like if you have surgery and it hurts and you need pain medicine, that is palliative care. So you can go back to like normal life after a time of palliative care. But that really focuses on like the management of pain, which becomes one of the most most important factors as these diseases kind of take hold and things go forward because pain oftentimes we interpret as suffering and like we don't want our animals to suffer we don't want people Mm -hmm. to suffer and so it's kind of how do we yeah maintain that quality of life for as long as possible until with animals we either make the decision to humanely euthanize them or we're seeing kind of happening more in veterinary medicine, this idea of what's called a hospice-supported natural death, which is essentially kind of what we do with people. So um, I think of like my friend Foster who passed away not too long ago. He had heart disease and went into hospice at home. And so there was a nurse that came and he had his big bed and um, they kind of adjusted his medications to keep him comfortable as he was starting to deteriorate and help keep him comfortable and moving him. So it kind of goes beyond like the normal medicine that we do. And the really cool thing about veterinary hospice too, is it gives us an opportunity to like to really connect with people and kind of figure out what their needs are. Like in a kind of general practice situation in those 15, 20, 30 minute appointments, we really don't have time to kind of get into like what we need. And I was like, this is the, like, this is a wonderful thing because like I can kind of take this block of time and set it aside and really kind of get into like, what do people need? Cause I felt like the way that I kind of interpreted my medical education was like, it's my job to tell people when it's time to euthanize their animal, but that's not true. Like it's my job to help them figure out when the best time is for them. Like my job as a veterinarian is to give people all of the options that they have and to help them figure out what the best one is for them. And I think if we were in that kind of former mindset, it can cause an awful lot of like ethical and moral like distress if our beliefs aren't the same as like the client or the owner. So I found that was really hard, like working in practices and like other staff, as I learned more about kind of hospice and palliative care, like seeing kind of these different ideas clash, like somebody coming in and maybe saying goodbye and everybody thought like, oh, this is too soon. But like, I knew no more and like they knew more and like, yeah, this is ready. This is time. Or somebody coming in and us all thinking like, oh, this is time. Like this animal is not doing well, but the owner has been like, they're not ready. And like the animal is still having good quality of life. And so I felt like, yeah, in some ways kind of completely shifted my mindset and like how I practice medicine. And like, I felt like, yeah, like this is my gift. And like, how do I get this to more people? So as I was doing kind of full circle, um, the certification <laughs> program and kind of thinking about what do I want to do next? Thought about moving back to Duluth. And it's like, I need a bigger town to be able to do this. And have kind of opened up the door of like, oh, I'm going to start my own business. And it was super scary and something I never mm-hmm. thought of before. And it's amazing, like how many like roads open up to you, like if you just like do something like that. And an opportunity I had never imagined came up and I met this lady through through the conference 
that owns a at-home end-of-life care business in the Twin Cities. So it's called Minnesota Pets. And Dr. Mm -hmm. Rebecca McComas, my boss, started this 10 years ago. So I had originally kind of thought of starting my own business in Duluth and reached out to her because she was kind of doing startup packages. And she helps a lot of other vets across the country um, as they get up and get going kind of with support and phone things and just kind of helping with those day-to-day things. So I was looking to her for some advice, like, how do I start my own business? And she was like, well, you know, we've kind of been thinking about expanding our business up into Duluth. Like, is that something that you'd be interested in doing together? And I was like, holy smokes, like I never even thought of this. (laughs) So it was really neat. And like, we were able to, I was able to do it a lot faster. Like within two months, like I had quit my job, sold my house, bought another house, moved. And then about a year ago, that's so much change. That's a huge huge decision. It was. And like, so I had kind of been thinking about it for a while before. So when we moved back to Grand Rapids, we're like, we'll maybe be here for like a couple of years and didn't really know what the next thing was. And probably like a year before I met Rebecca, I was starting to think like, yeah, I might, I might do this. I'm going to go start my own business. And I had told my bosses, like, by the end of the year, like, I'll be gone. And that really kind of got the wheels going. Like, once you start to kind of talk about it and start to do things, like taking those little baby steps, like whole new worlds open up. And yeah, so much change. And yeah, an yeah. arrangement I never would have thought of. And it would take me a really long time to kind of do it by myself. And in this way, I was able to really kind of do a lot of the things that only I could do and then have people help me with a lot of the things that I didn't know how to do or maybe wasn't as good at or like didn't need me to do them. So it's really awesome. Like I'm up here, I'm what's called an independent contractor. So the structure is a little bit different than like, I do still work down in the Twin Cities and I'm like an associate, like an employee there. So based on how much I work in Duluth determines how much I get paid. And then I have a regular salary in the Twin Cities. So I still go down and help once or twice a week. And yeah, this is all I do. And like, it blows people's yeah. minds. Like, how do you, how do you only do this? Can we, so can we back yeah. up a little bit? I want yeah. to bring it back to sort of this like idea of you discovering like your calling for doing this hospice and palliative care. Like, I think that's something that a lot of us have never thought about being something that we could do for our pet, you know, like, I mean, it, it is expensive and like, it takes a lot, but a lot of us have like pet insurance and stuff. Like, I, I just think so many of us are so close to our pets. I know my cat and my dog are like basically my life. Like I love them so much. And I know like bringing this sort of back to our girls and Girl Scouts, like girls want to be veterinarians because they care and because they look for ways that they can change things for the better. And they, they want to help people, you know, they want to be doctors, but they also just love animals. So like this veterinary medicine thing just makes sense to them. And and I think this is a piece of it that, that I know I didn't know existed until I knew you were doing it. So like, I just kind of wanted to like talk about that a little bit more. And Hannah, I don't know if you have any ideas like on kind of, or like questions uh, for Dr. Doran. I know like, so uh, Hannah is is our STEM manager. And so she works with girls who are like super interested in science. And I just kind of want to like bring it back to our girls for a minute. Yeah. Yeah, I really, I think that like, well, well, first of all, what I heard a lot about was like, when you were talking was kind of the process for figuring out what you wanted to do and how it was not simple. No. <laughs> it involved a lot of like 
testing things out, experimenting, trying different things, taking risks, moving places, moving back, all that kind of stuff, um, which I think is really helpful because like in your story, you knew you wanted to do to be a vet in some way your whole life to an extent, but you still took a while to kind of figure out exactly what that meant to you, which I think is really cool. And I think that that's an experience that like we don't think about as much. I, I think what's interesting about what you do is and I think that the girls would find this interesting too, is that it's caring for animals and for people. So and much. Yeah. So do you want to talk a little bit about that? Like the the two sort of sides of that coin? Yeah. So like the first kind of thing that I was thinking about is when you're talking about like kind of finding like your calling kind of. And I think it's a really hard thing if you're like, I don't know what I want to do. And like, there's all these people that have their calling. Like, why isn't my calling like reached out to me? Like, where are you calling? <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but I, I wondered think, that for a long time. <laughs> yeah. And I think like, it's a, it's a quieter message than we expect it to be. I think for the longest time I expected, like I'd be walking down the road and like, I would see it on like a marquee sign. Like, this is what you're supposed to do. Go this way. But I feel like it's oftentimes more like this very like, gentle whisper and like a little pull like inside of you like when like all the other stuff goes away when it's just like come here like come here and see what this is like and one of the things that I really think about my husband's an English teacher and we talk a lot about the hero's journey which is like a story they often teach in like high school English classes and it's kind of like the typical like hero archetypes so we think of like Harry Potter Frodo Katniss kind of archetype and what happens in the hero's journey is there is this call to action so like that little whisper saying like hey come here. Like there's an adventure waiting for you. Um, and call to action, long story short, like some mentors come along, like there's this challenge and like this gift is given to you. And then you kind of decide like what you're going to do with it. And there's kind of like, he talks about, there's three kind of things that can happen. Like once a hero receives this gift. And the first one is like, you sit on the porch with the dogs and like, you don't tell anybody about it. In a lot of ways, I feel like that's kind of what I was doing in Canada. I was like, I need to like run away from life and just kind of do my own thing and just get through it. And as things kind of started to follow, I was like, well, that's not really, that's not really good enough. Like there's, there's more than I need to do. And it was the little voice saying, come here, come on. And so like another adventure kind of sprung up and there was this call to action. And then the next kind of option is like, you receive your gift and you bring it back, but you just kind of give it to like whoever, whoever's there. And I feel like in some ways, like that's kind of what like Grand Rapids was. It's like, well, I know I really like helping people with this end of life care stuff, but I have all these other things that I'm going to do, but I'm going to like in those moments where I find people where they're, they do want this, like I'm going to give it to them. So like we ended up doing like a bigger exam and like I could spend the time doing that. And I was like, there's something more. And so it was like the next call to action. It was a little voice. Like, hey, come here, come here, come here. Like there's something over here for you. And then like mentors and guides like Dr. McComas and like the hospice and palliative care folks come up. And so the third option is like, you receive that gift and then you go and find the people who are most ready to receive it. And that (laughs) makes me cry. (laughs) Cause like that thing. And I feel like that's kind of like, like you go through that over and over and over again. And like, there's no marquee sign. It's just like following that little voice that keeps taking it down your path. And yeah, it's pretty, it's, and that's like, once you find the thing that like makes you feel like that and like sets your heart on fire and makes you cry, like that's <laughs> how you know. <laughs> and I think usually it does tie back into like helping other people. And so kind of thinking about how you'd asked about, yeah, like kind of treating like the pet and 
like the pet parent, like that's kind of what the big focus of hospice is, is because yeah, like in general practice as like a family doctor, like there's not time to go into all the emotional and the psychosocial needs that like the family has. Like, it's like, here's your diagnosis, here's your medicine. And like, I remember when I first started practicing, like they would say like, for like, something the animal is going to die from like here's your pain medicine like we'll see you on the last day you'll know when it's time and like that wasn't good enough for me I was like that's not how I want to practice like people need more and so it was so exciting to like find like my people and like these other people who felt the same way too and I think that becomes a big part of it too and like finding your gift is like finding the other people who whose hearts also get lit on fire by that thing because that will help you move forward because like nobody lives in a bubble. Like we have to have other people to help us move forward. And like, there are countless people who have helped me, like my family and my friends and my colleagues, like along the way, like definitely not things that I have done by myself. And on our own hero's journey, like that's when those mentors, that's when those guides come up to help kind of lead us forward. And then we become those people in everyone else in our, in like, in other people's hero's journey. So everyone's on their own little hero's journey and you're the hero in your journey, but then you also get to be like the guide and the mentor for other people. And so I really kind of started to see myself as like, I am not like the doctor that comes in and tells you what to do. And like, says, I'll see you in the last day, you know, it's time. It's like, I'm the person who's going to help you figure out like, what do you want? Like, what is your path of least regrets? Like, like, and I think if we can really kind of bring awareness to kind of this end of life process, like both with our pets can kind of help us do that with ourselves too. And in our society, it's so hard because like we, we pretend like death doesn't happen. Like, I think a lot of times we just kind of think like, Oh, we're going to live forever. And like, it's such a taboo thing. And like, nobody wants to talk about it. And like, that's okay. Like you don't have to. Um, but I think there are people that do want to and do need to. And I think in a way, like it's how like how we can heal. And so I feel like that's kind of like the big underlying thing that drives me is like, it's hard. (laughs) Like, you know, like it's going to happen to all of us and it's going to be hard. And yeah, I think it's possible for it to be like a very beautiful thing at the same time as like a very terrible, awful thing. Like, there's space for both of those things at the same time. Oh my gosh. <laughs> well, and what I'm hearing too is that I'm I'm hearing <laughs> you kind of talk about ritual, right? So like, and that's something that, well, yeah. so I'm a camp director. So I think about ritual a lot because there's a lot of ways we build yeah. ritual into camp to make it impactful Absolutely. and to make that. And that's kind of what makes camp so special. So those moments where we sing together, when we have campfire, when we, you know, eat together in a certain way, like that, that makes that experience special. And I think it's interesting because to me, it seems like you're kind of talking about bringing ritual into how we say goodbye to our pets, which maybe hasn't had as much ritual, at least in recent years, maybe it did before and then it kind of went away and now you're bringing it back a little bit, maybe, which I think is is special because ritual helps people process things and and makes it positive, right? So like it doesn't have to be all of all all negative. Yeah. And it, it can be it can be happy and sad at the mm-hmm. same time. And I think so often we think like that those things can't coexist. Yeah. And I think yeah, in medicine, like we're so often taught like the scientific method and like here are these five things and like you observe and all that stuff and it's not really real, like if it's with outside that realm. Um, but especially with death, like there's yeah. more going on there. And just because we can't use words to explain it, 
I think it doesn't mean that it's not valid. And so it's kind of opening up that sacred space, like at the end of this very like special, important individual's life and like giving the family the space to kind of move towards that end and then forward from it. Cause yeah, I think so often, like as a veterinarian, like if we don't know how to help people, like we don't necessarily know like the places to send them to help them. So what I really imagine is as we go forward is like what I do becoming like a specialty and like a referral service. And I know it's not available for everybody everywhere, but really kind of helping people make that like end of life plan and like going beyond the exam room when you get the terminal diagnosis and kind of saying like, well, what do you need? Like, what are your beliefs? What are your wishes? Like, what kind of rituals do you need to bring into this in order for you like to process your grief and to move forward? And yeah, it's just, it's a pretty magical thing. And like, yeah, I feel like I was always trained as very like scientific minded. And like, I feel like as I got older, I went to school, like the beliefs that I had when I used to play tales of the crystals with the magical healing crystal, like yeah. went away. And I like, I didn't feel like, like they were real because like science told me, like, if you cannot see this, hear it, feel it, taste it or touch it, it doesn't exist. But yeah, like there's space for both of those things. And so it's this really cool way to kind of bring in my medical training and the kind of the things that I'm interested in and kind of been working through, like kind of on more like an existential kind of level too. And it brings me a lot of peace. I find so much like satisfaction in doing because it's like, I am helping people like so much. Like I yeah. see it like right in front of me. And yeah, it kind of like, it, it, it feels, I don't have to worry about. Yeah, yeah. It, it, feels, <laughs> it feels a little bit like, well, I love it because it's another <laughs> myth buster that I can put in my back pocket about like what it's like to be in like a science field because there, there's a lot totally. of misconceptions. Like a lot, a lot of, I talk a lot about, for example, that the, the myth that, the programmer is alone in their basement all day <laughs> um, and only looks at a screen, which is a myth because programmers work in teams or the same thing with engineers that, that an engineer is a, is a singular genius who like an Albert Einstein type who just like, boom, there's the idea and like goes from there when really engineering is done in teams as well and has to do with helping people make their lives better. And so I like this because it's another one to add to my pocket of like <laughs> that that uh, there's this science piece to being a vet that deals with the facts and the medicine and all of those pieces, but it also has to do with the human interaction and stuff. And I think that will really speak to girls interested in these fields is like, it's not just about like facts and figures. There's, there's this other piece to it that you um, have to have skills in as well. And we know from research at Girl Scouts that uh, and this probably anyone who's listening to this it probably checks out <laughs> that when asked about like their primary career motivations, the majority of girls say that their number one reason for choosing a career is to help others. And and that's like the big motivator. And then like way down on the list is like be in charge of others and make a lot of money and <laughs> stuff like that. Um, and those things are are good yeah. too. We want more women leaders. We want women to make money. But I think that like it, it does speak to this idea that 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 girls really want to to make an impact. And I really like that added mythbuster piece. I do find like a lot of young people like who are talking about like oh I want to be a veterinarian. Like sometimes they do say like I really like animals, but I don't like people. And like those are the ones that kind of pull sides. Like, mm-hmm. talk. This isn't going to work out for you. Every single one, every single animal comes with people. Yeah. <laughs> like whether it's a pet or a farm animal, or even like if you're working in like government or research or like with wild animals, like all animals are represented by people. And like we are, 
advocates for them. And our jobs would be so much easier if they could talk. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think of like the vets, like, you know, I've had my kitty for, he just turned 15. So I've had him for a long time. Um, and I have a dog now, I have a puppy. And I mean, they're my heart, you know, I love them so much. And I've had a lot of vets over the years because I've lived all over the place. And the ones that stick out in my mind are the ones who like clearly cared about me. And I know that's really hard. Like that's hard to do that all day, especially in those 15 or 30 minute windows. And I just think like, it's the people like you, like you need that. And that's kind of hard to find like somebody who is really interested in science and really good at like math and anatomy and biology, like those really, it takes a certain part of your brain to be good at those things. And then you also have to have that whole interpersonal piece because you can't just be, I mean, unless you're going to be a researcher. But even then, yeah, you have to apply for grants if you're a researcher, like, and work in a team. And yeah, yeah. Those are the medical professionals, like even like people, doctors, MDs, like that's, that's what you're looking for is like that connection. But it's, it's hard to find a person who's good at both of those. And I think you've just like taken it to the next level. And I think that's just really interesting and um, exciting to hear that there's people like you who are doing this work, because that means so much to me, because I don't, I don't have any kids, I have my pets, and they are my heart on my sleeve. So like, I we need people like you. And I hope there's girls listening who like maybe have like a little spark, a little ding, like, oh, I like both of those things. <laughs> and this is a thing yeah. I could do. And then we can kind of spread that out. I mean, these are girls and young women who are going to be like entering these fields in the next 10 years. So I was thinking about too, like kind of some of the things that I was doing, like in order to get into vet school. And I remember somebody telling me like, you need to get a lot of different experiences. Like, your application is not going to stand out if like the only thing you've done is like volunteered at Humane Society. And like, it doesn't necessarily all have to be with animals, but like people are looking for people who demonstrate those leadership skills and communication skills. And like that is going to take you so far in the future because it's a really hard thing to teach in a classroom. Like a lot of it has to be learned like in groups or um, in communities and kind of doing experiences where you get a chance to do those kinds of things. They always say like, it's easier to be a human doctor than like a vet. And if you don't get into vet school, like go apply to medical school because there's so many more medical schools. Like there's only like 30 vet schools. So a lot of people um, apply multiple times like before they do get in. And that was one of the things that they had said, like for people who are having a hard time getting in, like really getting that diverse experience and demonstrating that you have that ability to connect with and communicate with and lead people. Yeah, it's very, very competitive. And it's not for everybody. And that's okay. And I know I've met like some young people who are like, I wanted to be a vet, but I didn't like math and science. And it's like, you definitely should not go down this path if you don't like math and science. But I think also like math and science is not something that comes naturally to everybody. Like I remember having to like bust my tail, like in math classes, like math classes were so hard for me. Like even like geometry and like pre-algebra, like calculus was like the most difficult thing on the planet. And like had to go to tutors. I have like my, for dummies and like, whatever books and like it was the hardest thing ever but I was like I can do this like this is like I can do hard things and like I asked for help and like I think if I wouldn't have I probably wouldn't have been quite so successful but like I think if it is something that you really want to do like to really kind of think about those things and try to get as many of those diverse experiences as you can can only help because yeah it's 
things I feel like, yeah, you have to kind of learn in the real world. Like it's hard to learn in the classroom. Sounds a little bit like Girl Scouts. <laughs> um, <laughs> learning some of those like leadership and communication Ooh. skills and like doing your take action project or your gold award can yeah. kind of help with, with some of those pieces too. So I wanted to like looking at kind of the conversation you had with Idell and, and what sort of stood out. There's, there's this piece about what you do. And then there's also this piece about the risk it took to like change careers and like to kind of move into being an independent contractor, move away from general practice. So do you want to talk a little bit about how that felt and like how it went? It was so scary. <laughs> um, I'm very grateful. I have like super supportive husband and we talked about it all the time. And the more I thought about it, the more I kind of realized like, if I don't do this, if I stay here, like I will regret it for the rest of my life. And I think sometimes like that kind of feeling of like, I don't want to do this, but I have to, <laughs> like oftentimes is what like drives you forward. And so I think like when you have fear, I think like there's two kinds of fears. Like there's the kind of fear of like, if you do this thing, you very well may be like hurt and this is dangerous and like you probably <laughs> should not do this. And then I think there's also the fear of like, like kind of like the tingly butterflies in your stomach is like, this is kind of scary, but I probably should still do it, but mm -hmm. it's still scary. And I think about, I think it's Elizabeth Gilbert who talks about like the eat, pray, love lady. And she talks about choosing curiosity over fear. And I remember I had read a lot of her books kind of around this time as I was thinking about like, oh, maybe I'll start my own business. Maybe I'll move away. And I'm like, I don't know, that's scary. And then I read a book like, okay, maybe I'll think about this a little bit more. And really started to kind of be very aware of like, the story that I told myself as these ideas came up, because I think a lot of times in the past, I'd be like, oh, you know, I can't do this. I can't do this. And like, that's what you're going to get if that's the story that you told mm -hmm. you, tell yourself. So as I kind of started to go forward, I was like, well, what if instead of saying like, I'm so afraid, like if I said, I'm very excited and I'm very curious about this and I would like to learn more. And that helped me kind of lean into it a little bit more and kind of like, like it kind of helped me like the butterfly fear, like dissolve a little bit, like it was still there, but it was more like kind of a a pleasure feeling than like a pain kind of feeling. Yeah. I don't know if that makes yeah. sense. But yeah. And like, I remember like, yeah, kind of reading her books and like kind of a little bit of like Glennon Doyle a little bit at that time too. And kind of like, but we can do hard things. And like that kind of became my mantra. And the other thing did was like, just kind of started putting up like little sticky notes of like kind of inspiring kind of things. Cause yeah, like mental health is something that like I have had, have struggled for with kind of off and on up and down over the years. And like, I think when I find myself in those like low, low points, like that's how I get out is like just kind of that repetition of like, I can do this. I can do this. I can do this one step at a time and like making like little lists of what I had to do. Cause yeah, I had this idea in my mind of what I wanted to be, but unless you can kind of lay out like a timeline, like a roadmap and do one thing at a time, like it's very hard to move forward. The other thing that makes me think about is the crematory guy that I work with right now, he and I often have like pretty profound conversations <laughs> about <laughs> life and things. We were talking about the Robert Frost poem, which most people have probably heard is the one about like the two paths in the woods diverge and he takes the one less followed and that ends up making all the difference. But when the crematory guy was telling me, it was like, it was actually like an inside joke kind of between him and his friend. Like it wasn't actually like, 
taking the path less followed is what made the difference. It was just like moving forward, mm-hmm. picking a path. Like, it doesn't matter mm-hmm. which path you take. Like just don't stand there at the fork being like, oh, what are we going to do? And I think sometimes we get so afraid of the things that are down the path that we can't see that we don't even take a step for- mm-hmm. closer to them. And oftentimes like the fear of the thing is so much more than like the actual yeah. thing. <laughs> and it, yeah, it's like the story that we tell ourselves like, So trying to be very mindful of that. Another thing that my husband says is a positive mental attitude is your most valuable asset. And I feel like it's something that really annoys me when I'm not in a positive mental space. Uh, But it's so true. And it's kind of that, yeah, like kind of what we were talking about with so many other things. It's like, how do we take this thing that's really hard and like really scary and like seen as very terrible and like transform it, like dissolve it and reform it into something that it's still hard. It's still difficult. It's still scary, but it's also beautiful. And it's, it's like how we evolve. Knowing all of this, talking about the path that you took, the different approach that you're looking at, and you talked a little bit about some of these things, like what's, what's your hope for future veterinarians, maybe even some of our listeners? I feel like our profession is in kind of a crisis. Um, there's been so many changes and a lot of people are really struggling with mental health. And I think it's because the old ways are no longer working. But I think as time goes on, we have more people kind of realize like you don't have to do the thing that you think you have to do. Like you can make your own dream. Like, like you have the power, like you are the most powerful magician in your own universe. And like, this is what magic is. It's not like waving your wand, like Dumbledore, (laughs) boom kinds of things, like focus on like the things that you want and getting rid of the things that you don't want so you can make that life that you don't want to escape from. And so I really have this hope and this dream for the future that when I talk to my other veterinary colleagues that they're able to make that life for themselves too. Like it's not going to look like mine, but for them to make that dream career. Like one of the things I feel like is really hard for me is like there's a lot of different like vet Facebook groups and we talk about things that are kind of hard with the profession, but somebody put out the other day, if you could do it again, would you? And there's thousands of thousands of comments. And it was kind of 50-50. Like half the people said yes and half the people said no, like no way. And like that just breaks my heart. Like, you know, to spend to invest so much time and so much money and like so many people, like this has been their absolute lifelong Mm -hmm. dream. If you can imagine it, like you can make it in your life. But yeah, it's not that like flick of a wand. It's it's like, it's like making a pile of rice. It's like taking one piece at a time. And like, it doesn't seem like it at first, but like over time, like it becomes like a mountain and like all those little changes. And so I have this hope that, that other veterinarians will be able to find that passion in their life and like find that thing, whether it's veterinary medicine or not, but like to be able to find that happiness in their lives. And then I also kind of, for like the profession too, like I think a lot about like kind of how we've said goodbye over time. Like we've come a long way from old yeller. (laughs) And like, it really breaks my heart. Like when I hear stories about people um, having like experience have like gone badly, like gone poorly and like their memories of it are, are painful. There's a lot of like regret and guilt with that, right? Like a lot of times, like not knowing if it was right. Yeah. And a lot of people think like, oh, did I do it too soon? Like, could I have done more? Like, did I wait too long? And I really imagine a world where, we're able to start these end of life conversations sooner when people are ready to be able to help them create like the end of life of their dreams so that when they do look back, they say like, ah, oh, yeah, like, I chose the path of least regrets. Like 
I did everything that I could. And it's super normal, like to have those feelings of like, I wish I would have waited longer. I wish I would have done it sooner. And like, whatever you're feeling with it is normal, but like to be able to help people find peace with it sooner. It's still going to hurt. Like, it's still going to be awful. And sometimes I feel like my job is to, like, rip people's hearts out and, like, gently press them back <laughs> yeah. in. <laughs> but, like, it's it's what we sign up for. Like, when we get a pet and, like, I've kind of been thinking about, like, you know, when does this journey start? And, like, we're not conscious of it. But, like, the moment you get a puppy or a kitten or adopt an animal, like, you sign up for this. And so... Um, we don't want to think about it. We want our animals to live absolutely forever. <laughs> yeah, like I imagine in a, a world where death becomes like a bigger part of day to day and not like the awful part, but like that realization that we never know when the last day is going to be. And so waking up and saying like, how are we going to get the most out of this one? Yeah, and I feel like in some ways that kind of feeds into like healing yeah. of, like the whole world. <laughs> kind of a big hairy audacious goal but I feel like those are the ones that are worth working towards that's awesome that's a great takeaway I think yeah. people will be inspired by that I feel inspired. I'm inspired yeah. <laughs> yeah we really appreciate you being vulnerable and like you know bringing your full self to this and I feel like we've really gotten a good picture of of who you are and what this means to you and, and we really appreciate you heaven taking up that space with us so now we're gonna have a little bit of fun with our would you rather question it's kind of a simple one but I'm a little bit excited about it because I already know my answer which is not usually like me but (laughs) would you would you rather live in a cave or live in a treehouse I felt like maybe it was too simple but like I was kind of excited about it I feel like I can make this complicated go ahead make it complicated (laughs) In the, in the same way that you could build a treehouse to be lots of different things, right? Can our cave also be like, you know, like, for example, could your cave be like sparkly, glittery cave full of beautiful crystals? Oh, yeah, totally. Okay. It's not cave like, wonders. okay, you're living in a deer stand or you're living in a bear's <laughs> den. <laughs> it's like, like all the, any reasons you can think to like, have like a really sweet cave or like a really yeah. tremendously awesome tree house. Like sweet. those can all be parts. <laughs> unlimited budget. You have an unlimited budget. <laughs> so I'm going to, I'll, I'll go first because I, so you guys can think about it. Yeah. I would pick tree house because like one of my favorite, like old, old school Disney movies is Swiss family Robinson because they build <laughs> this just, mm like elaborate crazy treehouse and it's got all these pulleys and ropes and like buckets that scoop water out of a pond and like bring it up and there's like you know sort of like Rube Goldberg machine type things where it's like delivering you food and you're like swinging from ropes to get to your hammock where you sleep under this like awning made of banana fronds and when I was a kid my grandparents lived kind of out in the country on this kind of reedy little lake and they had all these like swampy cool like woodsy areas and like my cousins and my sister and I like built this treehouse that always reminded me sort of of the Swiss family Robinson treehouse like I couldn't believe how cool it was and I'm sure I would look at it now and be like this is literally trash nailed to trees (laughs) (laughs) but at the time it was like magical so now I I watch these like you know, those HGTV shows where they're like, oh my gosh, you could like live in this tree house. And I just think that would be so cool. You know, love it. So I, I would live the tree house dream. (laughs) 
I love it. Um, Amanda, why don't you go? This is really hard to choose, but if you have a really awesome tree house, then I could come and visit you at your tree house. And then I could have a really awesome cave. And I was trying to think like, would this cave be like underground? I don't know. I feel like I would need some sun. So I think it should be in a mountain and you kind of like hollow out the mountain and you have like inside on one side and outside on the other side. And you could have like multiple water features and maybe like a mermaid kind of like stone theme inside. And it could be like hot spring Ooh, fed, yeah. like bath and you can have like multiple baths like the turkish baths where you go in one and then another one and like a waterfall and a sauna and then like fancy magazine style kitchen with like the stainless steel appliances and then um, <laughs> outside like the back mountain cave door that's where all the garden is with excellent sun exposure and then maybe there's like a hole in the top so you could have like kind of a deck overlooking all your bounty and then kind of have that tree house feel and maybe even be close so we could have like tin can phone between like my mountain game and your tree house oh yeah problems are over I, that sounds perfect i'm gonna come sit near cave hot tub baths uh yeah. and you can come and use my bucket pulley <laughs> I, I think i'm gonna go with cave as well the the main thought that i had was that i like to be i'd much rather be cold than too hot and i feel like cave is like a great place to be if you want to get like cozy yeah. so i pick cave and then that's why i asked about the glittering sparkling thing like crystal cave all the way or like mica or something like yeah. so that it, it's like really glittery in there and sparkly and then I definitely like all of your additions <laughs> like we definitely need some kind of pool or something and like trickling like waterfall kind of yeah. a thing like coming Ooh, from who knows where a cave where the opening is like it's a secret cave oh yeah waterfall over it and you have to go through the yeah. waterfall like maybe in a boat yeah, classic video game thing where there's definitely something yeah. on the other side that's cool if there's a waterfall. <laughs> like, yes, that that's yeah, what I definitely Yeah, waterfall, game. hidden waterfall. Awesome. <laughs> well, these are excellent answers. All right. Well, thanks, Dr. Doran, for being Thank here with us Thank you today. for having me. All right. Now it's time for Girls Pick. Hi, my name is Isa, and I am in ninth grade, and these are my top three fruits. The first one is probably an orange because you can just have it in your pocket and bring it around with you and it's a nice snack for wherever you go. I also like strawberries because you can like put it on bread or put it on things and it's always really sweet and nice. And the third one is probably a watermelon because if it's like a hot day, it's always really nice. Girl Talk is brought to you by Girl Scouts River Valleys. Our host is Hannah Gilbert. The show is produced by Adele Erickson and edited by Sarah Mikatel. For more about the podcast and our team, go to girltalk.girlscoutsrv.org. See you next time.